Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I have a special episode. Understanding conspiracy theories is key to devising strategies to tackle them. And during this month of June, we are going to shed light onto the complex world of disinformation. We will raise awareness about the dangers of this phenomena and share possible solutions to fight it. In our website, liberalforum.eu, you can find much more about this. But on this podcast, I have the pleasure to have Martina Bitikovic. Martina is the head of eStratcom Task Force, part of the EU European External Action Services. And we're going to talk about the action of this group that she's leading right now in fighting disinformation and conspiracy theories in the European Union. And after a conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF, for this month of June. I'm here with Martina Budekevich. Martina, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a privilege to have you here and very, very important conversation. And let's get into that. Uh, so tell us the objectives and the actions, you know, the main pillars for the organization that you lead. East Stratcom Task Force has been around since 2015. Um, that was the time when uh, European leaders who uh, met at the European Council Summit, they gathered and uh, they knew enough about how procurement disinformation campaigns looked back then. And back then, uh, those campaigns were mainly about Ukraine. So the leaders in 2015 said, well, we need to take care of this. We need to support Ukraine, but we also need to uh, think how procurement disinformation can reach the European Union. So in order to do that, let's um, establish a team, uh, East Stratcom Task Force, that will respond to the threat. And that's what happened. Um, the three main pillars of the actions that were um, also agreed on uh, back then uh, are the pillars of our um, activities still today. And these are um, direct response to disinformation, first of all. Um, the second pillar is uh, proactive communications, uh, especially in the Eastern neighborhood. And thirdly, support for independent media. And I think all those three pillars are very, very important because when you try to respond and fight disinformation, you need to also take into account that this, that disinformation uh, leaves a huge void. Um, and this void needs to be filled with uh, correct and reliable information. That's what we are trying to do. Let's go in a little detail. So when you say direct response, what kind of actions do you guys do to exactly respond directly to this threat? Um, basically, uh, we debunk disinformation. This is one of the most visible um, strengths of our work. Uh, everybody can visit the EU versus Disinfo website. This is EU versus Disinfo.eu. Um, it's in English, all of it, and in Russian, uh, and some of the content is translated in, uh, in major EU languages such as Italian, um, French, Spanish, German, and Polish comes um, later this year as well. Um, and uh, one of the most visible products that we have, and, and our flagship product, I would even say, is the database of disinformation cases. It's accessible to everyone, and we have been... Uh, conducting this monitoring and this debunking since the very beginning um, of our work. Uh, in the database, you can find single disinformation cases 
all of them are uh, recorded, debunked, and also explained um, in the mm -hmm. sense that we try to not only to focus on single cases, uh, because that just wouldn't be enough. We also try to explain why this is uh, actually happening and how a single case can be a part of a bigger trend uh, and what, what uh, this trend particularly means. Um, right now, we are able to monitor over 20 different languages of this information. Um, and these are all recorded in the database, uh, as I said already. Uh, since the beginning of this work, we recorded over 12,000 of, 12, 12, of cases. So very comprehensive and very extensive also. Martina, one thing that I would like to bring to the conversation is that, and you just mentioned proactive communication, which is a one-sided uh, road here, but I am sure that you are also working with organizations on the field. So tell us a little bit how that process go, even for people that are listening to us and would like to get involved. Obviously, as we are part of the European External Action Service, which is the so-called EU diplomacy, um, we have delegations um, in different countries. And the work of my team focuses on the Eastern neighborhood. Um, so this means uh, basically Russia, which is uh, a very specific case, I would say, um, but also six countries that, are, um, that form the Eastern Partnership region. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, uh, we could say on the one hand that, that uh, those countries have a lot in common, uh, but at the same time, um, all of them are very specific. Um, so our actions are different in Georgia, for example, and different in Ukraine. Um, but what we also, what we always try to do is to work with local partners as much as we can, uh, because these are the people that know um how the situation looks in the region, in a, in a particular country or even in a particular community, um, so they can help help us understand also the local circumstances. Um, and this cooperation uh, is not only about proactive communications, um, but also about uh, reacting directly to this information. Um, I think it's important really to understand um, what the local and regional specificities are. Because if we don't understand that, then we can't really respond and we can't really communicate um, effectively. Uh, so for people in Moldova, for example, um, a different message would, would probably come across um, better than, uh, than, say, in Belarus. But Belarus is, is a very um, specific case, especially now. One last question on this. Do you vet the organizations? The organizations come to you. Do you initiate that contact with uh, these uh, groups that are on the field on these different countries? Tell us a, a little bit how that work goes. It goes both ways, I would say, uh, meaning that sometimes we proactively uh, seek organizations that um, specialize in one field or another, and sometimes they come to us um, mm -hmm. As I said, we also work very closely with all delegations, EAS delegations uh, um, in the region. Uh, so they are always very helpful to, to, to also um, be a kind of an intermediary between um, our team and the organizations uh, in the field. These are our eyes and ears on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I would say it goes, it goes both ways. Well, I'm going to put all the links on the show notes of the podcast so that people uh, that are listening to us can then know more and know how this machinery works. 
Now getting a little more into the reason why I asked you to please come to the podcast and that is focusing on this information and later on we're going to be talking on conspiracy theories. Uh, you just uh, arrive at your position, congratulations for that, and you come in a moment where because of the pandemic of the COVID-19 um, there's this stream of um, disinformation and conspiracy theories. So it is already very hard to do your job, but now it's even harder, I guess. So tell us a little bit what is the situation where you get into now and how to, how to manage all this. Let me maybe, maybe just briefly um, also mention that, indeed, I just became head of, of Eastratcom Task Force. However, I've been with the team since late 2018. So I had my share of, uh, of working with, uh, with narratives, with disinformation, or against disinformation, rather, um, already. Mm. I think uh, the pandemic is a really uh, fertile ground for disinformation. And actually, almost from day one, or actually a bit even uh, earlier than day one, I will get back to this uh, in a minute, uh, we noticed how um, how this situation, the pandemic, uh, the virus, uh, all those restrictive measures that were have been in place, um, how they are being exploited um, by pro-Kremlin outlets, but not only by them, by um, different actors that, that try to um, create confusion and chaos and manipulate um, our minds. Um, actually, the first disinformation case that we recorded, um, as far as uh, the, vi the coronavirus is concerned, um, was recorded uh, back in January 2020. So actually before the virus, as we knew, um, reached Europe. And the case came from uh, Sputnik Belarus, actually. And it was questioning um, everything we knew about the virus back then. Um, so um, that was actually uh, the first message that we recorded, but it was also a showcase for the cases that, that came afterwards, uh, also when, when the virus already um, hit Europe. Uh, so the first, uh, the first message and the first wave of disinformation, I think there were three, um, by the way. Um, so the first wave was uh, mainly about questioning the existence of the virus or um, rather, or also underlining that if it exists at all, then it must have been created in secret labs. Um, so this is also a beautiful link to, to, to what we are going to talk about uh, later on, conspiracy theories. So that was the first wave, uh, and it, uh, it lasted for a few months. Uh, but there came a point where I think uh, those who were uh, active in the disinformation field uh, saw that uh, the pandemic is so, so big and um, reaches really uh, everyone. Um, that it doesn't make any sense to actually go um, in the direction of, of questioning its existence um, anymore. And then the second wave came of the second wave of disinformation, questioning the restrictive measures and all the precautionary measures that were uh, put in place by national authorities or international organizations. As is usually the case, um, the disinformation machine um, knows quite a lot about uh, their audiences and the messages that are being pushed are also tailored to particular audiences. So it means that, for example, for Polish people, uh, the message might be a bit different than, than for German people, for Italian people. 
um, or for other audiences. What we saw is um, that those uh, narratives questioning uh, the restrictive measures and, for example, saying that wearing a mask does not make any sense, it's not going to help anyone, or uh, you don't have to bother disinfecting your hands because uh, the virus is going to spread anyway, for example. Um, these uh, were very much present in Italian and German uh, disinformation space. Um, but then the third wave came, and we're still on it, actually. Um, this is the wave that uh, is about uh, the vaccines. And uh, a very fertile ground, again, for um, anti-vaccine uh, disinformation messages, but also um, because this is just one, one actually direction that disinformation is going uh, right now. Another one that is about the vaccines as well um, and comes directly from pro-Kremlin outlets is about uh, saying how bad Western vaccines are in stark contrast to the vaccine produced by Russia, which is Sputnik V. Martina, this is really, really um, fascinating information that you're giving us. And I, if I can ask a quick question, and that is, you were saying that all this is tailored for different member states, or even sometimes, I imagine, could get sophisticated to the point that maybe certain groups inside certain member states. How, how does this thing work? So normally people think, you know, there's this groups of trolls and there's all these people thinking about all this disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories and pumping them into the system but do you have any information so is this centralized is this like independent groups that are working all with the same goal is there like a connective tissue that connects all these organizations do you have any information on that Yes, indeed. I can speak of uh, pro-Kremlin actors because this is uh, what I deal with every day. As far as pro-Kremlin disinformation is concerned, we know very well from different sources that this is a centralized and coordinated, a centralized campaign coordinated uh, from the Kremlin, actually. We know it from different whistleblowers uh, and uh, journalists' uh, investigations. And what we know, for example, is that weekly meetings take place in the Kremlin where uh, the state media um, are given very precise instructions, what to write about, what to report about, what not to report about, and in what language. Um, so this is where it starts, but then it uh, spreads uh, to different uh, pro-Kremlin outlets, uh, which are uh, funded or in other ways supported uh, by the Kremlin. And this includes, for example, the biggest um, disinformation uh, channel that is active outside of Russia and in the whole world, basically, which is RT. Um, RT, which uh, used to be called Russia Today, um, is present TV channels in 100 countries, but it's also present online um, it has different YouTube channels in many languages. Some of them are very popular. Uh, so you can actually say that um, RT is present all over the world. And it is backed by hundreds of millions of dollars every year by, um, by the Kremlin. Um, on top of that, uh, there is, uh, what is uh, what has been known as the infamous uh, Troll Factory. Its official name is the Internet Research Agency which was established around uh, 2013. 
And back then it was operating only locally in St. Petersburg, but then uh, its activities spread also probably worldwide. There is still quite a lot that we don't know, especially um, on the funding side of this undertaking. But what we know definitely is that the whole operation is being directed by Evgeny Prigozhin, who is very close to Vladimir Putin. And from different researchers, um, we can hear that this operation uh, costs, uh, well, probably several million dollars a year, but we can't be sure about that. Um, Officially, uh, it has never been confirmed that the Kremlin is backing the IRA as well. However, the research, the independent research and uh, investigative journalists um, confirmed that several times. Um, So this is the scale of the operation, or really the tip of the iceberg, what I just mentioned. Uh, There is more. As I said, it's not only only worldwide, so to speak, but it's also uh, centralized. It is uh, coming from the Kremlin directly and it is supported by uh, millions of dollars every year. Martina, it, it gets even worse than that. And that is not only they're doing all this work, but then they outreach to agents, unwilling agents, of course. Indeed. For, for example, very recently, we had the information that media, uh, social media influencers going all the way from TikTok to Instagram were actually being paid. Again, we can't assume that they were working directly with knowledge, but they were getting money and they were saying, you know, again, conspiracy theories and disinformation about vaccines. So this is how big this thing can get. Yes, exactly. We also had uh, heard reports from Africa, for example, where uh, local journalists um, were being used by programming proxies, uh, programming actors, uh, sometimes unwillingly, sometimes uh, completely consciously. Um, So yes, this operation is really, really far-reaching. This is something to be worried about. Uh, At the European Liberal Forum, we just had a publication, and I'm going to put also the link on the show notes, called Beyond Flat Earth, Conspiracy Theories versus European Liberals. Of course, you're here as uh, the head of Eastratcom Task Force, so we're not going to talk about policy that much. But you are in a privileged position to see the damage to uh, Europeans and to the European Union and even to democracy of this kind of conspiracy theory. So please get a little bit into that. I think really the pandemic has changed a lot um, in all (laughs) walks of life, basically, but also in the disinformation space. What we saw as a team is that the current situation or the situation, the pandemic, basically, um, was uh, being used as a very fertile ground for all sorts of disinformation messages and conspiracy theories. It's actually quite easy to understand why this is the case. Because when you think about it, uh, the pandemic is uh, really um, touching uh, the lives um, and very deep emotions of each and every one of us, doesn't it? Um, and especially in the first months when we really didn't know what, what is going to happen. We didn't, we didn't understand what this virus is about. Uh, all of a sudden we were locked in our houses um, and we didn't know how long this, this could last. And uh, also uh, actually how the virus works. Uh, to understand that, um, you would need to have a very specific expert knowledge 
which is uh, not something that most of us have. Uh, and at the same time, we, we were supposed to understand what's happening. And we try to understand this at least. Uh, in this kind of um, environment, and especially when we actually fear for our health and sometimes for our lives even, and for our loved ones, for their, their well-being, um, it's very, very easy to actually fall for theories that don't have anything to do with reality. Because um, on the one hand, we, we really need information. And when we are thrown so many different narratives, so many different uh, information and disinformation messages, and we don't actually have the means, the tools to, to differentiate what is true, what is not, especially when it comes to, to, to a very concrete expert knowledge, uh, how, how would we do that? So if we, if we don't have the tools to do that, then we fall uh, much easier um, for those theories. And also, on the other hand, um, we really, uh, when we fear, um, when uh, we feel so many deep emotions, um, again, it's easier to fall for, for something that, uh, that is not true and something that actually is easy to digest. This is also a factor. Um, so when somebody comes and tells you, well, you don't have to believe in all of this. This is, you know, it doesn't really exist. You don't have to worry about that. Well, you know, you kind of, when you're so vulnerable, you, you, you feel, okay, so this is something that, that calls me a little bit, right? Uh, so I don't have to believe that this may be some kind of conspiracy of the global government, of the deep state, of Soros, for example, or of EU bureaucrats, because we saw all of those versions. Um, so there are people conspiring uh, for us to, 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 to just feel insecure, to feel unsafe. And they want us to buy, the, they want the states to buy vaccines um, so that big pharma can benefit, but we can really harm ourselves by, by getting vaccinated. Um, yeah, sometimes in, in a situation like this, it may sound really uh, comforting. Indeed, uh, Martina. And, and the confinement also led to the perfect storm, which was people were at home, they were on the internet, they m probably started with simple questions, and then as things were getting complicated, as you said very correctly, so the simplest answers, even if they're the wrong ones, are the ones that people feel more comfortable. And and this is, this is a somewhat of a trick question, I understand that, and it, it comes a little bit of a left field for you, but I'm very interested in knowing your opinion. But because the, the work you do, and that is the first line of response, trying to fight disinformation and give the right information, but then you have all the machinery of the internet. You have algorithms, you have bad agents, you have digital platforms, you have social networks. So for someone like you and the team that you lead, how can you deal with that reality also? So it's, it's sometimes just giving the good information, it's not good enough. So how do you see that challenge? It is a challenge indeed. Uh, and it's becoming a, even a greater one, I have to admit. That's true. Um, however, what is uh, uh, more positive uh, here is that since um, 2018, when the um, action plan against disinformation was adopted by the European Commission, um, there is uh, quite an intense cooperation between the European Commission and social media platforms. It's voluntary, but all the major platforms actually signed up for it. 
Um, so far, uh, the cooperation has been mostly about the social media platforms reporting every month, and these reports are publicly available on the European Commission website, um, about how uh, many accounts, for example, they took down because um, they were spreading different narratives, um, disinformation narratives, or even more so, because that's what most platforms are focusing on, um, they were behaving inauthentically. Um, however, the, the issue that, that came um, about um, during this, this process uh, was that uh, every social media platform actually uses their own language to describe what they are doing. So there is no common understanding yet uh, there. Uh, what should be taken down, uh, what not. And social media platforms obviously are private companies, so they decide how they go about it. Uh, however, uh, just a few weeks ago, the European Commission issued guidance on the new um, code of practice, because that's what the framework of cooperation is called. Um, and this new guidance, which, which will be operational in, in a few months, um, goes in the direction of uh, more transparency and more accountability of social media platforms. So um, from our point of view, uh, it goes in the very right direction because it will, if, if all goes well, if the cooperation really um, um, speeds up, uh, we will be able to understand more about how algorithms work and um, how social media platforms actually work against disinformation and inauthentic behavior. There's still a lot um, to be done and to be to be understood. Uh, obviously, again, social media platforms are private companies and they, they uh, share as much information as, uh, as they are willing. Um, so there's still quite a lot that we don't know. However, um, this cooperation really uh, is in place and I think it's getting more intense. What is also very, very helpful is uh, and that what, what Twitter and Facebook are doing. Um, when they take down a, a network of accounts, um, they give researchers access to, to, to um, whatever they actually took down uh, so that researchers can understand better how those um, accounts or those networks of accounts worked. And this is how we can also understand better how, how they worked and, uh, and then, of course, uh, work on our resilience. However, uh, again, on the more, more negative side, uh, it has to be mentioned, I think, that uh, disinformation actors, uh, also because they have quite a lot of money um, behind them, they learn very fast. So uh, it's not uh, that, we, that we can, for example, design one measure to, to, to counteract. And, for example, when Facebook blocks an account, uh, this doesn't mean that this account is not going to pop up somewhere else with a different name, for example, or um, operated by someone else. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that there are different uh, different means and different techniques. Well, basically spreading disinformation messages. And uh, sometimes it's quite difficult to stay ahead. Well, anyway, we should also commend them because I've been following this very closely and not only in Europe, but also in the United States. And there has been there have been some concrete measures from digital platforms when they identified misinformation. And it goes all the way to policymakers and politicians. So it's not only the trolls 
you know, cooking all kinds of crap to the system, but also when you have some people that are have positions of responsibility and they should know better, uh, at least we, we have that. So that that is a good development. Uh, Martina, as we're getting into the end of the conversation, I'm going to ask you please to give us uh, your final thoughts on this and how can people follow the work done by eStratcom Task Force. We have EU versus Disinfo websites. Uh, it's EU versus Disinfo.eu. Uh, and um, I would very much welcome you, all of you, uh, to take a look. Um, we have the disinformation database there that we mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, but also um, many, many different analysis about how disinformation works. Um, for those that would be willing to, to, to dive deeper or even much, much deeper into the topic, we have the whole library there. Um, but also uh, on a bit lighter note, we have some stories where we try to explain how this information works in a very yeah, slight and uh, sometimes even funny way. And what you also can find there is if you'd like uh, a bit of flavor from the Eastern neighborhood, uh, we also try to use EU versus Info as a platform for um, independent journalists, for example, from the region. So this is also something that you can find there. And of course, we are also on Facebook and on Twitter. So um, take a look. I hope this will be interesting to you. You are doing a fantastic job. It's a very important uh, function that eStratcom Task Force has and also as you mentioned, our work in diplomacy in, in European External Action Services. It was a privilege to have you on the podcast. I hope I can have you back uh, anytime soon because there are other things that we should talk about. One of them is exactly as you were mentioning, supporting independent media. I know that is something that it's very important inside the European Parliament, inside the European institutions and for you also. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much for talking to me and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of June. On the 29th of June, starting at 2 Central European time, we have new technologies in the old continent. This is based in Hungary, in Budapest, part of the Magveto Café Budapest Online, organized by our friends at Republican. When the COVID-19 pandemic appeared in Europe and schools and universities had to be shut down, white-collar workplaces switched to home office and political action was changed according to the requirements of social distancing. Most of the communication between teachers and students, colleagues, citizens and politicians went online. With this conference, we want to show what we could gain from this pandemic and how digitalization continues to change our society now. And on a personal note, I'm actually one of the members of the panel. So if you want to see me, you can always visit this event on the 29th of June and see us talk about digitalizations. I won't talk about the podcast, but we'll talk about other things related to digitalization. And then on the 30th, we have also a Zoom webinar based in Brussels in Belgium, Multispeed Europe 2. 
Looking at the current state of the EU, one cannot help but realize that we are living in a multi-speed Europe, starting from older ones, like the area of freedom, security and justice, Eurozone, the Schengen area, and looking at new ones in the form of PESCO, Frontex, and the Banking Union. As the EU motto goes, United University, we should embrace our differences and our different speeds and try to create a better European project through them, not against them. Health hopes to stimulate the debate on a multi-speed Europe through two roundtables and subsequently produce a policy paper which will address the main open question and issues that will predominate these events whilst also providing policy recommendations on how to tackle these issues and ensure a smoother integration process for all EU member states. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not 